Welcome to a presentation of Telios Meditation and Study Group. Our lecture today is entitled Telios Gnosis, The Path of Perfect Knowledge. We're going to today be explaining what these two Greek terms mean, Telios and Gnosis. We see Paul talking about Telios in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. And we have here that uh, wisdom is obviously Sophia in Greek, and perfect is Telios. Now we are a uh, Gnostic group. We know that Gnos- that uh, this word Gnostic comes from the root word Gnosis. And Gnosis means knowledge. And of course, this type of knowledge is not something that is uh, ordinary. It's not a knowledge of this everyday world. It's also not knowledge of some type of secret that's whispered from one to another. The type of knowledge that Gnosis is, is fundamentally and intimately related to your own existence, your own being. The depths of your consciousness. Knowledge of yourself. This knowledge of yourself is not an ordinary knowledge about your personality, about your likes and dislikes. We have a sense of self. We have some understanding of who we are in the ordinary sense. But we need to go much deeper than this to acquire Gnosis and to acquire perfect or teleos gnosis, that implies an enormous amount of work. The complete development of all of our possibilities. The complete realization of our potential. And Paul is pointing towards this. And he uses the word teleos. So simply put, teleos means that which is perfect consummate human integrity and virtue, the realization of one's ultimate purpose in life. There's a related word called telos, which just means the end purpose or goal of something. So for example, an acorn would have a telos of becoming an oak tree. So each of us have a type of telos. What's our end purpose? Why are we here? What are we doing? All of us, of course, we are some spark of light that has been thrown into this world of various material combinations. 
And we have to come to not come into knowledge about what we actually are. Because what we have presently is a lot of assumptions, a lot of things that we've been told, a lot of things we have learned from others and from society. But have we discovered ourselves? Do we even know the methods, the way in order to do so? Finally, there's a word called talesis, which means planned progress, intelligent action towards a goal. The question that I have for you to reflect upon is what is your personal talesis? What is your intelligent action? What goal are you trying to acquire? Whether we have reflected upon this or not, we hold something inside of ourselves. Some goal that we have. What is it? We're born into a world, into a family, into a culture, into a society. And as children, we soak up the environment. Even if we were never told explicitly what we should aspire for, implicitly we see it. We see it in others. And we may not even realize the types of things we're striving for. Striving for respect and prestige. Striving to be accepted and loved by all the people in our world, in our orbit. Looking to get to some next place in society. Well, it should not be a surprise if you're listening to this lecture that all of those types of aspirations of finding material success and respect and prestige is ultimately fleeting and unsatisfactory because we really don't have control over any of those things. We have temporary limited control at times. But of course, we all march directly into death, unabated. That day will come. This is why we have to strive to develop gnosis, self-knowledge, so we are prepared for what is true and absolute. So what types of what types of ideas and theories and movements are within our cultural milieu that give us a type of telos or telesis implicitly or explicitly? We have a cornucopia of different schools, ideas, philosophies. We live in the age of information where any variety of ideas, contemporary or ancient, is just a search and a click away. So most people derive their sense of purpose 
from beliefs, religious beliefs. And the common idea of religion today is that if you believe in a certain set of codes and ethics, that this belief puts you in the right place so that you'll be saved, so you'll be doing what you need to do. Other times, it's not just a belief, but you also have to participate in certain acts, uh, rituals, services, etc. And by doing those things, by being um, initiated or brought into the spiritual community, then you are in that way being saved. And then we, of course, have the reaction or the opposite of this, of atheistic beliefs, skeptical type of beliefs, which originate from the notion that we have no type of empirical evidence, so-called, according to such people. No reason to believe in God or religion. So they believe the opposite. We have those who carry a type of fatalism within them. Fatalism could be of a religious or mystical type and also of a material type. The fatalist who is more religious or mystical would say that God controls everything. God's plan is ultimate. And therefore, God made me this way or made me that way. And therefore, this is the way it is. This is who I am. My life is in such and such a way. And they believe that there is no need to try to change anything about themselves. There's also an alternate of that, which is not that you don't need to do it, but more than that, it's impossible. God doesn't give us the capabilities to acquire Gnosis. And uh, there are a lot of views that see the, the aspiration to develop divine knowledge as being egotistical or prideful to even attempt to acquire or develop knowledge beyond this small personality that we inhabit. Then there's a type of fatalism related to materialism and related to reductionism, related to the modern scientific view of the world related to the forces as we understand them of the universe. Because in such a view, there is no agent. There is nothing that has self-will or any type of will. There is just mechanical forces. Everything is derived from those mechanical forces. Even our brain, which has been intricately developed supposedly by these mechanical forces through the laws of evolution the brain gives a type of illusion that we have consciousness an illusion that we have a type of will choice agency action but according to such people we don't actually have any agency because the brain is just controlled by those same forces the neurons can be reduced to molecular and chemical forces, and those chemical forces are 
reducible to atomic forces, so on and such forth. There's no one at the driver's seat, so to speak. It's just mechanical forces all the way down. So these are different types of fatalism. Fatalism meaning, in other words, you are bound by your fate. You are already, whatever it is, this is the way it is, and there's no, there's no way out of it. Some people put fatalism, uh, a type of karma related to fatalism. They view karma as completely mechanical, that if you have a certain karma, you can't ever change that. You're bound by it 100%. But actually the Buddha stated that you can put into, into action other types of activities or other actions, karma, to overcome an inferior karma. And of course we have the types of people who wish to seize the day. You only live once. This idea of only living once is actually a modification of the true doctrine. If you read the Pistis Sophia, near chapter 100 and further on, it speaks about the souls re-entering bodies, etc. What happens if a particular person uh, never finds the mysteries and they die? What happens to that person? Do they get another chance? What happens to a person who finds the mysteries and then turns their back on them? Do they get another chance? Etc., etc. Many questions are discussed there, which all imply, of course, that the soul can return into other bodies. So this philosophy of uh, YOLO, only, you only live once, is actually very harmful for the individuals who believe that they can do whatever they want and it's not really going to matter because they harm themselves through certain actions and they're only uh, putting more suffering into their own life in the end. So we have uh, many other things such as the whole notion of postmodernism which is basically the view that there is no one absolute truth. There's only relative truths. There's only different ways of viewing something, but there's nothing truly absolute. And it's also the value system becomes relative. So the artwork and the creative outlets that, that appear from that notion is that there is nothing that is sacred. There is nothing that is sacrosanct. So... That type of creative expression just mixes and plays with things and tries to create novel uh, mixtures and ways of having taboo breaking, etc., etc. And of course today we have a lot of people who believe that they can reach their purpose or get closer to their purpose by ingesting chemicals, by taking drugs. And all sorts of experiences can occur. But it, uh, it should be pretty evident that that is not a path to knowledge. It may be a path to certain types of experiences, but you won't gain wisdom that way. So it's good for us to, to reflect upon all of these things, these ideas, these notions, because we carry them, whether we are conscious or not, until we investigate we may find some of these things within ourselves. We need to be very clear and not inhabit them, eliminate them, remove them 
remove their assumptions and work on ourselves within so that we can apply ourselves correctly. Because if we inhabit some of these false doctrines, we prevent ourselves from working on ourselves. We prevent ourselves from investigating within. So in contrast to all of these notions, we can read in the Pistosophia exactly what Jesus says our intelligent action should be and what we should be striving for. Now in the Pistosophia, this is a deeply symbolic, mystical, Gnostic work, a Gnostic Bible. It's very difficult to understand most of it, but some parts of it are actually very clear. In that text, Jesus is given a different name, which is Abramento. We understand that this is the inner spiritual name of Jesus, of the one we call Jesus. So Abramento states in the Pistis Sophia, Cease not to seek day and night, and remit not yourselves until ye find the purifying mysteries, which will purify you and make you into a refined delight, so that ye will go on high and inherit the light of my kingdom. So, very clearly, Jesus is stating, search for the mysteries of the light. Purify yourselves. Make yourself into a refined light and inherit the light of my kingdom. Put in another way, we should be attempting to awaken our conscience and achieve perfection of knowledge. Teleos Gnosis. So there is a Another word, another branch of philosophy called teleology, which is to study things in terms of their ultimate end purpose. And just as we have our own personal telos, we can also consider the telos of the universe. Samuel and Vior states, in accordance with Hegel, who was a German philosopher, the unconscious itself would never have undertaken the vast and laborious task of developing the universe except with the hope of reaching a clear consciousness of itself. To this term, it's in quotes, unconscious itself. This is a very particular way of using this, this word unconscious. It's pointing towards that which is beyond consciousness. It's a term that was used by some of these German philosophers. So this is why Samuel and Vigor was putting in quotes. In other words, this entire universe emerges out of an absolute abstract space, out of a nothingness. And this is what all the mystical doctrines talk about. But why? It does it in order to develop more knowledge, more wisdom. And if we look at 
the tree of life, we see at the top the Ain, the Ain Sof, and the Ain Sof Aur. Those three at the top there are three aspects of the Absolute. In the Pistis Sophia, the third aspect, the Ain Sof Aur, is called Barbello, also called the Treasury of the Light. The word Aur in Hebrew means light. Abramento also states in the Pista Sophia that ye are the refuse of the treasury of the light. The refuse of the treasury of the light. What this means is that we are what has not passed through the filter. Because in every creation of the universe, or any cosmic unit we can say, because there are the cosmic days and cosmic nights. Everything goes through a cycle. And at the end of a cycle, everything gets swallowed back up into the absolute and remains there in repose. And at the beginning of the cycle, things are ejected or spit out of the absolute. That which gets spit out of the absolute is the universe. And there's a big, long development of how that occurs. But fundamentally, during the cosmic day, during the, the periods of manifestation, only that which is perfect remains in the absolute. And anything else which does not have that perfection is spit out. Only that light which is perfectly refined remains. That type of light we call a dark light because it's totally incomprehensible to ourselves. Now, from the, from the aspect of the absolute, what actually emerges is completely still incomprehensible to, to us. That which remains in the absolute is even further uncomprehensible. This is why Jesus, or Abramento, states that we are the refuse of the treasury of the light. Because we are that which was manifested outside of the absolute, because those are the particles, our interior spark of light is not perfected. We don't know ourselves. We don't know that. That spark of light doesn't have its own cognizance of its own nature. Therefore, into existence and into the bonds, the chains of all these layers of manifestation. Now, talking about Hegel, Hegel developed a, an idea of philosophy, which is called the Hegelian dialectic, in which, according to him, the spirit of God developed itself or knew itself through the clashes and developments of society itself. So progress of the ideal occurs in human civilization through conflict. Civilization is the march of God in the world. 
world history is the record of the mind's efforts to understand itself. All of these types of revolutions, in this case I have a picture here of the French Revolution. According to Hegel, things would happen, progress would occur, but every time that new progressive element would emerge in society, more liberty, more freedom, it still wasn't perfect. So it would it would again be torn down and a new type of uh, social system or ideal would be manifested. And little by little, the culture would become more and more refined. And little by little, the people in that culture would start to inhabit the superior values. It wasn't a perfect straight line to progress, though. It was a back and forth. This is the dialectic. And what Samael Enviore is stating is that there's some general truth to this, of course, because we're all placed in different uh, societies and we inhabit some of those values. And hopefully there's some, something positive going on there. But we also know it's definitely not perfect. And there's a limit and a larger sense of when a certain experiment, we can say, is over. So within the experiment, you have these dialectical forces trying to develop society. But within the bigger picture, within that cosmic picture of these cycles, there's still a limit to the experiment of civilization when everything gets wiped clean. And this is what, for example, the book of Revelation is talking about. So in uh, contrast to Hegel, of course, is Marx. Marx took the Hegelian dialectic and flipped it on its head. He developed a materialistic dialectic, or dialectical materialism. And he said, no, 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 no. The root thing is not God or spirit trying to manifest itself in the world. The root thing is matter. And we, as human beings, need to organize that matter. We are responsible for our own progress not some unknown, unseen thing. So he developed this dialectical materialism, saying that the march of progress occurs only through the arrangement of society and that you know there is no spirit inside of man other than what might be created by his external circumstances. wouldn't be really a spirit, but it would be the, the geist of, of society, the value system. He also stated very, very famously that uh, religion is the opiate of the masses because religion is being used to exploit and stupefy, to prevent people from progressing, to keep them stupid, to keep them in a series of beliefs. Now, of course, from a certain level, a lot of religion is being very basic in the way that they apply the values of, of spirituality. And they are looking for people just to be believers and to not have the audacity to develop spiritual knowledge within themselves. But to say that all religion is, is merely a means to stupefy the masses, of course, is ridiculous. So this type of materialistic dialectic um, sort of gets its tendrils in all sorts of parts of society that believes that the only way to create change is through bloody revolutions or something violent and spectacular in the material world. 
that you have to forcefully pull down institutions and change them. Problem with this, of course, is that the people who do this themselves also have their own interior problems. They don't see themselves, they don't look at themselves inside because they don't believe that they have anything inside to really look at. They're just material. So, of course, all the issues with Marxism have been talked about at length. But it's important because this type of view is very prevalent, but you don't see it under the terms Marxism. You have to, you have to know how to look for it and how it influences us. So we talked a little bit about teleos and teleology and the progress of our interior self, the progress of society, and now to move over to the other side of, of knowledge, of gnosis. Well, in philosophy, this is called epistemology. The nature of knowledge, how do we acquire knowledge? I want to talk about epistemology because we are impoverished in the, in the ways that we understand how knowledge is acquired. It's true that in the, today's world, the intellect uh, rules. Those who have a great intellect can apply themselves in a way in ways to make a lot of money. It's the most sure way to have a lot of material success in today's world. And there is enormous abuse of the intellect. Because ultimately the intellect is like a wasteland. It can't actually bring you to happiness can't actually bring you to the end goal. But at the same time, uh, knowing this, a lot of spiritual types reject the intellect completely, and they don't develop an understanding of where different types of knowledge come from. So we're going to talk about two major types and their implications. The first is rationalism. So rationalism is what we commonly understand as reasoning through the intellect. We get the word rationalism from ratio, which we know a ratio, if you have, if you compare two things, you get a ratio between them two. So rationalism is always about taking something and comparing it to something else. But the intellect never actually can see anything completely, totally. It only knows a relative difference between two things. It can't know a thing itself. Well, in rationalism, if you are a true rationalist completely, then you would believe that the truth can be discovered through reasoning. And there's generally two types of reasoning, inductive and deductive. Deductive is pretty simple. You see two things, uh, and then from, from those two things, you can see that they are, they are related. You're not bringing any new information into the reasoning. So for example, if you know that A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. You didn't have to bring any knowledge outside of yourself or outside of that information in order to deduce what the relationship is between there. The other type is inductive, where you bring something in to, to rationalize it out. So most you know, easy way to look at this is that if you observe that if you observe that your neighbor leaves their house every day at 8.30 in the morning, then if you observe that a couple times, then you could 
reasonably then say, well, he probably leaves every day at 8.30. We reason that out. What we're doing is that we're taking particular discrete observations and then we're placing in there, we're inducing something. We are um, inferring that it must happen every day like that. And every, day the, every day the sun comes up, so tomorrow it's going to come up. And in the East, this type of reasoning is more related to the word inference, uh, which is uh, anumana. And here we have a picture of um, Dignaga and Dharmakirti. And below we have, of course, um, Plato and Aristotle, masters of reasoning. Now the other side of the coin is pure empiricism. Samuel Unvior often states that we should, uh, he, he gives a, um, a description of some things as being empiric and absurd, certain types of ideas. Empiric and absurd. What he's saying is that if you just observe something and you don't have any other type of information about it, you're not bringing anything else into it. You're not reasoning about it and you're not getting any type of information from our consciousness. Therefore, you're being too, too empirical. So empiricism, you would say all knowledge occurs through sensory experience or perception. And this is known both in Western and Eastern philosophical traditions. So this type of thinking we, happen, we, we, we have all the time as well. If we were to go outside and look at the ground on a very flat part of the ground, you might say, well, it doesn't look, I'm looking at it, directly observing the earth, and I don't see any curvature on the earth. Therefore, I don't see it being curved, so it must be flat. I, the earth looks flat to me. That's being empirical. This is a very empirical observation. Of course, that's completely wrong. But our sense impressions tell us, well, it looks flat, that's a very blunt, obvious truth. It must be flat. The problem with this type of empiricism is that empirical observation gives us the wrong information all the time. For example, even if we take this a little bit further, because traditionally empiricism is about the perceptions of the external world. But actually you can develop that a little bit further and for a moment look at yourself. If you're not educated in a system or a philosophy that can help you understand yourself better, you would get all sorts of false impressions about yourself. And this is what the Buddha is trying to drive home so much. He's saying that self, which you think you have, you see every day so much, it actually doesn't exist at all the way that you see it. There's something else going on here. And he says, this is the way to, to discover, to figure out, actually, what you're seeing is wrong. It's not just that you have to believe in that, but you have to actually develop the insight in order to have that. But even if we go particularly ju just to the external world, to our perceptions, we see things in relationship to reality, but nothing is actually the blunt reality. Everything that we're seeing is actually a sort of culmination and a, just an abstraction of what the thing actually might actually be. So, for example, I mean, just the material universe, it looks like it's solid. It looks like we have all these solid objects around us. But 
well, according to science, actually, that's not really the way it exists. Like, everything is just uh, an energy field. And the only reason my hand can't pass through this wall here isn't because atoms are bouncing against each other like billiard balls, but actually because the forces related to the aggregation of my finger and, relate, and then also related to the, the wall, they, they, they repel each other. And it feels like we're touching it. But actually, just, it's just all forces. So even material is nothing what it looks like. So anybody who's serious about investigating that, the old notions of materialism are completely incomprehensible. They have no basis whatsoever. It appears that things are like that way, but they're not actually that way. But there's actually even a bigger problem with being overly empirical. And this is what David Hume, another philosopher, very clearly articulated, which was that, number one, deductive reasoning has a humongous flaw in it. And number two, there's a huge issue with causality. In terms of deductive reasoning, he's saying, yes, okay, you are seeing that your neighbor is leaving the house every day at 8.30. So you infer that he'll leave the house tomorrow at 8.30. And you probably are right. But what David Hume is saying is that you have no truth there. You're just making an assumption based on a probability. You might be right, but there's nothing that you could say is a universal truth. It may be pretty much true for right now, most of the time, and you pretty much can live, and we do this, we can live our practical life because we all assume that, yeah, this is how things work. When I go to the stoplight and it's red, that means I should stop. That's the way the law works. And when it turns green, the other persons are going on the other on the other direction are going to stop because the red will be red there, and I can drive safely through. That doesn't always happen. We get into accidents all the time, but we're constantly inferring, and from a pragmatic standpoint, we're able to live our life because of that. But when we're talking about philosophy and absolute truth, you cannot get to any absolute truth through uh, a deductive reasoning. Which means, how does science work? If science is so powerful, science does an experiment, we get a result. We can do that experiment twice, get the same result. We can infer that it will always be true when we, when we do that scientific experiment. And obviously, that seems to work because that's how we've developed so much of our knowledge. But you cannot escape the reality that we are simply inferring that it will be universally true. It's not true knowledge. It just happens to work all the time. The second thing he brought up was causality. He basically said, yes, when you kick a ball, we basically infer the ball moved because we hit it with our foot. And then it moves in a certain way. And there's a cause and effect reality that we're observing. But when you really break it apart, true observation all it is doing is observing that the, your foot happened to hit the ball and the ball happened to move in that way. But where do we get true knowledge that we know that the ball was not moved by something else? 
Now you might say, well, when would that ever happen? But when we're, again, when we're talking about true absolute knowledge, we can't get it from observations, simple observations. Causality, again, happens to be when we see things happen in certain ways, it's just a habit that we've developed by obser observing things a lot, the way things happen in the world. You know, if I, if I pick up um, this water bottle, well, I kind of know how heavy it is because I've done it a lot. But if you ever picked up something like that and you thought it was full, but it really wasn't, then you pick it up really fast because you were inferring that there was, there was weight in there. The problem of causality is actually humongous because if you're a true philosopher, you want to know the truth. And you can't seem to get to it without inferring that there's causality. You're simply saying, things seem to happen this way. I'm going to believe in causality and then go from there. That's how, that's how everything works. That's how the scientific method works. Scientific method can't prove causality. Scientific method assumes causality and then goes from there. It sits on top of causality. It assumes it. Now, if science is truly empirical down to its core, it would need to prove causality, but it can't. And this is a common, everybody knows this. this I mean, if you're, if you are uh, studying the philosophy of science, this is an obvious issue that's been talked about quite a bit. So where do we get this assumption of causality? And actually, there's even there's more problems than that related to uh, space and time. Well, um, <clears throat> after Hume wrote all about that, another philosopher named Immanuel Kant came around he said he was um, awoken by Hume from his dogmatic slumber. What Hume wrote really troubled Immanuel Kant. He really he couldn't find any real f flaw at first with Hume's writings. But he also believed that there has to be some objective reality in the world. There has to be some type of truth. It's not just a bunch of assumptions. And he was trying to mingle these two things together, that yes, causality is not developed through empirical observation, and we don't get it from anywhere else, but at the same time, Newton's mechanical laws of motion seem to perfectly predict that there actually is these forces. So he was really troubled by this, and he ended up developing a philosophy which kind of overcomes those limitations. And this is exactly why Samuel Envior mentions Immanuel Kant many times throughout his books. Because Immanuel Kant was the one who was able to articulate how to resolve this contradiction. And what, he's, what Immanuel Kant is saying is that we have types of intuitions that the very structure of our being provides a way of experiencing space and that causality is also related to an intuition. It's nothing more than that. And he explained, you know, there's a whole immense doctrine about that that I won't get into details with.
So according to him, the mind comes with the innate or a priori capacities to organize sensory data. Space and time are intuitions of the quote-unquote the understanding. That is basically the intuition. The thing in and of itself is experienced only through the phenomenal world. What he's saying is that sensory information is giving some representation of something that's really there. But actually, we can only know it through the manifold of our senses. So all of these facets that we have, this uh, all of our sense organs are just transforming energy in different ways, and the, it represents the thing in and of itself in terms of light and heat and color and spatial extension. But it's just like if you have a television and you have an old television that's not high def, you can see a picture and it looks one way. Well, then you just change the screen to a high definition screen, that same thing comes a lot more crystal clear. Now, is that because the thing itself, the picture itself actually changed? No, the apparatus through which you saw that information changed. Now, we have to take that to the next level and realize that the apparatus is our physical senses. Those physical senses are bringing only certain types of information. And even more than that, our inner senses are also developed in such a way to make it possible to see things like this. Samuel Unviewer states, Immanuel Kant, the great German philosopher, considers space to be a property of the receptivity of the world through our consciousness. And Kant states, we carry within ourselves the conditions of our space, and therefore, within ourselves, we will find the conditions that allow us to establish correlations between our space and, and superior space. In other words, Samuel Enviar states that we have to develop our spatial sense. The spatial sense is within consciousness itself. The only thing, addition, in addition to this, the only thing that can actually grasp the true nature of causes is the consciousness, not the intellect. Reasoning cannot actually get to the depths of causality. Empiricism cannot actually get to the depths of causality. And if we want to develop ourselves as a soul, if we want to do the work, then we need to get to the causes as to why we are in this way today. So these forms of knowledge are related to what we call the three minds. The inner mind, the intermediate mind, and the sensual mind. The sensual mind is related to empiricism and is fed through external sensory perceptions. It gets new data from the external sensory perceptions. The intermediate mind is related to rationalism. And this is where we get our religious beliefs, our scientific beliefs or dogmas, our atheistic beliefs. 
the intermediate mind is between the central mind and the inner mind. The intermediate mind does not acquire any knowledge or any information in and of itself. The intermediate mind is only able to take information from the sensual mind or the inner mind and elaborate concepts based upon those contents from the sensual mind or the inner mind. So it can organize and compare that data and form concepts, beliefs, rationale, but it doesn't actually have access to truth. The inner mind is related to, of course, mysticism, the development of gnosis proper, and it has direct knowledge of truth and causes. That's where we need to de develop ourselves. We need to know how to access the inner mind. The inner mind is completely and totally associated with our consciousness. And our consciousness is not a physical body. It's not our personality. It's not our thinking or reasoning. And it's not our emotions. So when you observe yourself at this moment, and get out of yourself that you are not the physical body, you are not the sensations of the physical body or the perceptions, you're not your thoughts, and you're not your emotions. So what's left? And if you are able to, to reflect upon that deeply, repeatedly, you will be going into meditation, as a matter of fact. And you will be able to access the inner mind. You'll be able to draw, at first, very little bits of knowledge, bits of information from the interior worlds, which we saw earlier in that tree of life. The higher up on that tree of life, the, the more pure type of information can, be, can come down into our consciousness. Because unlike what Marx says, the consciousness is not created through our brain cells. There's been a tremendous amount of effort from scientists to figure out how consciousness emerges from our neuronal activity. They have tried to uh, develop a theory of what's called the minimal, minimal amount of information necessary to be conscious, quote-unquote. They say, well, the brain is this such and such so complex. What's the minimum amount of complexity required for consciousness to emerge? Because they believe that through more and more complex combinations of matter or neurons in this case, eventually the neural network becomes aware or becomes conscious and uh, can have qualities, qualia, the experience of consciousness. And they actually did a lot of work on that and there's not been any progress. There are a lot of people who believe because, you know, if, you're, if you hit yourself on the head, you can fall unconscious. So people believe that obviously the brain must be, must be generating the consciousness because when you, when you hit someone in the head, that person seems to go unconscious. Or obviously when you get an injury or you die, the person doesn't seem to be there anymore. This type of argument is extremely actually, it doesn't actually prove anything. It's just stating that there's a correlation between the brain states 
and consciousness. And again, scientists are trying to do all sorts of experiments to find correlates. They, do, they connect some type of imaging apparatus to a brain, and then they do some type of action. They, they make the, the animal or the person see something or do something, and they see different parts of the brain light up. And of course, they're, they're getting better at doing that, but none of that actually is getting them one iota closer to understanding how consciousness appears. There actually is some postulations that there's even quantum effects occurring in the brain, which 20 or 30 years ago was seemed as absolutely preposterous to the scientific community. But we're beginning to learn that even in photosynthesis, there are some aspects of that which require quantum mechanics in order to function correctly. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that our biology doesn't stop at the molecular or chemical level. You see, our body's made up of, obviously, atoms, but made up of cells. Those cells are made up of usually different types of proteins or chains of molecules. And that's how we understand the, the body to work at a low level. But beyond this, within certain aspects of the brain, it appears that there's some capability for quantum effects to be occurring. So, okay, perhaps that's happening. But even that won't potentially, it won't give us anything about how consciousness is developed. It may give us more information of how information and experience is transmitted between this physical world and the interior worlds. But it won't actually answer the question of where does consciousness come from. So when we develop our consciousness, we begin to develop that inner mind which can know the true causes. And if we want to change ourselves, if we want to get out of the situation that we're in, we need to know why we're in that. We need to know our causes and we need to change them. And we do that by doing a spiritual work. So we talk about the three factors of the revolution of the consciousness. The first factor is called birth. So obviously something needs to be born inside of ourselves. And Christianity talks about being born again. But the, uh, the way to understand that is not that you believe yourself to be born again. You actually have to work with the material, the matter. This is why Jesus says, you, you are the refuse. Sometimes he says, you are the material refuse of the treasury of the light. So we are this type of unrefined material. And we have, we have the base material in order to form something within ourselves. And this was traditionally called alchemy. And in Gnosticism, they talk about three basic types of people. The hylic, the psychic, and the pneumatic. Hyl means material or matter. So that is the sort of lowest type of person, a materialist. So for a materialist, the soul is not acquired. It is dispersed amongst the darkness as material refuse. This is the common level of humanity. So by materialist, in this, in this term, we're not talking about somebody who believes that everything is made out of matter. We're actually talking about somebody who has not developed their soul. The soul is our psyche, our psychology. So 
Think about where is all the information of your psychology coming from? Where is all the information of our psychology coming from? If we don't have the inner mind developed, then all of the information that we're getting about the world is coming through the sense impressions. And therefore, our psychology is organized amongst and only within the first three dimensions of space. This is what we call a three-dimensional psychology. The only thing we know is about the three dimensions. We have a sensual psychology. So whether or not we believe in religion or not, or we believe in something else, it's immaterial. Our actual level is defined about whether or not we are developing our soul. And of course, the second level is what is, can be called the psychic. But again, the word psychic here is not the way we use it in the modern world. It just means someone who has developed their soul to some degree. Again, the word psyche is soul. Somebody who has reached this level has acquired the soul, but not perfected it. There's a lot of darkness that remains. And of course, the third level is the pneumatic or spiritual soul. This is someone who has the soul perfected. The way that we work through this, we talk about in other lectures, but we have this fundamental energy material within ourselves and we need to know how to transform it. And when we learn how to transform it, it becomes an exceedingly refined light within ourselves. So some similar to the way you will you know, sift, sift through the dirt in order to find gold. There are little particles or specks of that gold within the earth. And we need to know how to take all those pieces within ourselves and develop these bodies out of gold. So we need to know how to transform our energy, how to work with alchemy. And this is the principal reason why all the traditional religions always had a lot of ethics related to sexual behaviors because the sexual impulse is our inner fire and within that fire is our inner light. So that energy has to be very carefully used. But again, from the materialist point of view, they just see the material aspect of the sexual energy and they think it's just biology. But in, re- in reality, there's an energetic and subtle component to those energies which must be transformed. And then what that does is it forms, it, it uh, develops, crystallizes superior aspects of ourself within that tree of life. And then we can inhabit those regions spatially with a developed spatial sense of the superior worlds. We need to give birth to our soul. Secondly, we also have to have something die within ourselves. So the second aspect is called death. Now, death is seen in every religion. We know that Jesus died on the cross. That's a deep symbol of psychological death. But in, in the Greek and Roman mysteries, we find a lot of heroes that are doing a great work. And we mention two here, Ariadine, Theseus, 
and Minotaur. In that story, if you're familiar with it at all, Theseus has to kill the Minotaur. But Ariadne has a thread that he gives to Theseus. And Theseus has to go through a labyrinth. And he carries that thread with him through the labyrinth. And he's able to get to the center. And Minotaur is there, which is the great beast. And he obviously slays the Minotaur. And then he's able to get out of that labyrinth by following that thread. So that thread really is our continuity of consciousness, a continuous consciousness, which is connected to our divine spiritual principles. So our consciousness is, is connected to that. And if we know how to carry that thread, we can get through the labyrinth. The labyrinth is our own psychology. It's obvious to see that whenever we try to do something, we try to make some great change in our life, we often fail. We often find ourselves confused, not understanding things, not understanding why we acted in certain ways. And that's the labyrinth of our mind, getting lost in it. And quite simply, when we try to meditate, we get lost in the mind because we lose the thread of our consciousness. It is through meditation that we can develop the knowledge, the understanding, the comprehension in order to die psychologically. You see the same basic template with Perseus and Medusa. Perseus needs the assistance of Athena in order to have the correct weapons in order to slay Medusa. And in this case, he has a shield Every time someone would directly look at Medusa, they'd turn to stone. Again, this applies directly to our meditation. Because anytime we directly look into ourself, into our mind, if we're not careful, we become petrified. We lose ourselves, and our ego and all of our egotistical elements start acting through us, and our consciousness is lost. But Perseus, obviously, he slays Medusa, and he does so by using the reflectivity of his shield. Again, that reflection, that ability to see through the reflection is the, is the power of the consciousness. Because the consciousness is connected to our divine principles, so long as we keep that shield, we keep our reflection correct, we can see through the power of meditation, we can see Medusa, and we can slay that. It's very beautiful stories. And you can see many, many other stories of going into hell, of slaying dragons, etc., etc. Overcoming some enemy within religion. It's always that enemy, that difficulty, is always inside, and we have to go inside to kill those elements. And when we slay that dragon or we behead Medusa, obviously the blood flows out. That blood flowing out, that is related to the energy which gets liberated. Because within inside of ourselves, we do have, we have consciousness, and that consciousness is related to our true agency, our true willpower. When we have the ego, that ego traps our willpower. And that's why it makes it so difficult to do certain types of things. 
That's why it might be very easy for some one person to do something and very difficult for another person to behave a certain way, to not be tempted, etc. It's because the ego is trapping the consciousness, trapping the, the willpower to do otherwise. And it causes our will, our volition, to always be modified, to be attracted towards strengthening that egotistical desire. The third factor is called sacrifice. Sacrifice is what unites and congeals the other two. And the first level of sacrifice is simply to realize that all of this stuff that's coming out of your mind and coming out of your emotional center, you need to observe it and you need to sacrifice everything that's not related to your telos, to your telios. And you begin to sacrifice your egotistical desires. Abramento states in the Pista Sophia, Renounce the whole world and all its associations that ye may not amass additional matter to the rest of your matter in you. In other words, he's saying, don't amass more chains to your soul. Renounce the world. Turn yourself towards the light. In the Gospel of Thomas, it is written, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. This is the material, that material inside of ourselves. We need to sacrifice that material. We need to go through the sacrifice of our own ego. And beyond that, we need to do things which help others. This is the whole whole necessary component. If we don't help others in the world, how can we expect to ever be helped? We should give of others to others that which we need of ourselves. This is the way the, the law works. If you need something, if you're looking for something, if you're trying to acquire something within yourselves, you should try to give that thing or help someone else get that. This is the way that we sacrifice. And of course, those who develop spiritually can sacrifice themselves more and more until you reach the level of someone like Abramento, who's able to sacrifice a great deal in order to provide great assistance for all of us. So through those three factors, we are able to walk on the path in this particular lecture, we only discuss these topics superficially. We will go into more detail in other future lectures. But that's the way. Those three factors, of course, are related to the Trinity or the three Logos. And we inhabit those three within ourselves as we develop those three factors. We live that way. But there's one final aspect that I want to talk about which is after you develop your soul, there's one level which we're just going to read a quote from in order to understand that which is beyond consciousness. 
that which goes back into the region of Barbello, the absolute. We're going to end the uh, lecture with this quote. In accordance with Hegel, the unconscious itself would have never undertaken the vast and laborious task of developing the universe, except with the hope of reaching a clear consciousness of itself. The term unconscious is in its depth very ambiguous, doubtful, confusing, and discussable. However, we may use this term in a conventional way in order to indicate or point to a creative mystery, something that is much beyond the consciousness. It is unquestionable that Parabrahman, the universal spirit of life, transcends all of that which is called consciousness. Therefore, it is obvious that we may call it unconsciousness. Within this strictly human theme, we can and must even emphasize the idea that before transcending the consciousness, we first need to awaken it. Certainly, the idea about the absolute consciousness behind any phenomena is extremely vague, incoherent, and imprecise. It is absurd to confuse the consciousness with the absolute being. Unfortunately, many philosophers fall in those aberrations of the mind. Sat, the unmanifested absolute, has nothing to do with the consciousness, because the latter, as brilliant as it might be, is like a miserable wax candle before the uncreated light of that which has no name. Unquestionably, the Schelling and Fichte schools have become greatly severed from the archaic and primeval concept of an absolute principle. They have only reflected upon an aspect of the fundamental idea of Vedanta. The absolutergeist, vaguely suggested by von Hartmann in his pessimistic philosophy about the unconscious itself, is perhaps in the least the major equivalent to the European speculation in regards to the Hindu Avita doctrines. Nonetheless, it is also very distant from reality when the error is committed of identifying the absolute being with that which is called consciousness. The human biped, or better if we say homunculi, who is mistakenly called human, is incapable of elaborating a single concept unless that concept is related with completely empirical phenomena. Therefore, due to his strictly intellectual and animal constitution, he is unable to lift even the tip of the veil that covers the majesty of the absolute abstract space. The cosmic consciousness, the great alaya of the universe, must awaken within each human being. Nevertheless, we make emphasis of the necessity of not confusing the consciousness with the absolute. The finite cannot conceive of the infinite, neither can its own type of mental experiences be applied to itself. How can it be stated that the unconscious itself and the absolute itself 
cannot even have one instinctive impulse or hope in order to attain clear consciousness of itself. The necessity of attaining the awakening of the consciousness is indisputable if what we sincerely want is illumination. Such a superlative awakening without previously having passed through the terrible Buddhist annihilation would be impossible. I want to emphatically refer to the destruction of the I, to the death of the myself. Two types of illumination exist. The first one is called death water because it has bonds. The second one is praised as the great life because it has no bonds. It is direct experience of the illuminating void. In order to experience in a complete way the illuminating aspect of the consciousness, we must first of all, and by all means, become conscious within ourselves. It would not be possible to submerge ourselves within the current of sound, within the illuminating void, without previously turning asunder the bonds that in one way or another bind us to the consciousness. We transform the subconsciousness into consciousness with the annihilation of the ego. However, afterwards, we must destroy the shackles which connect us to the consciousness. The illuminating void is the quote-unquote unconsciousness itself. Here we are utilizing the term unconsciousness in the sense of something that is far beyond the consciousness. Have you ever heard about the anupadaka? The strict and rigorous sense of this word signifies without parents, without progenitors. Osiris is the father who is in secret, the particular monad of everyone. Isis is the duad, the feminine aspect of the father, the divine mother Kundalini. Auros is the innermost, our divine spirit, the triad. It is easy to understand that when Aros becomes victorious in the battles against the red demons, the devil eyes, then he gives himself the luxury of swallowing his own soul. The best comes after this banquet. Father, mother, and son, in other words, Osiris, Isis, and Aros, these three divine fires with a diamond soul are mixed, fused, and integrated amongst themselves in order to form one single flame, an adupadaka. Therefore, the occult lord, the one who is immersed within the absolute, within the inexhaustible and inconceivable bliss, the anupadaka, cannot have a father, since by himself he is self-existent and one with the universal spirit of life. The mysteries of the hierarchy of the Anupadakas within the abstract, absolute space is far beyond all possible comprehension for us. Perfection means a lot. Telios means all of this. First, we have to awaken our consciousness. We have to perfect the soul. Then the soul is swallowed.
then that diamond soul fuses. There is a great image on the flag of Mexico, which is the eagle grasping the serpent on top of the cactus. The symbol of the serpent is everywhere in religion. Our divine mother Kundalini is that serpent and that serpent is within us. We rise those serpents, we perfect those serpents, the serpent then swallows us, then the serpent is swallowed by the eagle, then the eagle flies into the abstract absolute space. This is another way of understanding these words. That is perfection, and nothing less than. That should be our goal. Do you have any questions? The, that Mexico flag analogy is staggering. Any advice? The advice is to follow the three factors of the revolution of the consciousness. We have to awaken our consciousness. We have to know ourselves first. Only then can we talk about going beyond consciousness. We don't even possess consciousness right now. The symbol is beautiful, and that's why I mentioned it. I find it also very staggering. Going back to Paul, Paul states that death is swallowed up in victory. This is a Kabbalistic statement. We have to die within ourselves. We have to meditate and die within ourselves to awaken our consciousness. Next question. I was hoping to learn all of that in university, particularly in the humanities, and I did not. Thank you very much. Can you expound on the two types of death? Two types of illumination exist. The first one is called death water because it has bonds. The second one is praised as the great life because it has no bonds. So these are two types of illumination. From our perspective and from the, the general person's perspective who hasn't studied these things, it's very difficult to understand the different levels of awakening and illumination. We view everything very simply. We have to begin to acquire a more sophisticated understanding. Typically, we see someone as being a saint, a prophet, or an enlightened being, and it's sort of a, a binary state. You're either an ordinary person or you're completely enlightened. But obviously, there's many, many degrees. And the truth is, you can acquire a domain or the right to live in the superior worlds, heaven and nirvana, and still have a lot of karma, a lot of chains and bonds, and uh, a lot of ego. So even though you've acquired some level of birth, some level of death, because the great universal spirit of life is compassionate and is not a tyrant, allows such individuals to rest at that level. And even though they do not have perfection, they have happiness. They've done good things, so they deserve vacation, and they're entitled to it, and they are free to take it. And that's, that is what is being referred to as death water. Now, this term, death water, is very, you have to understand it very 
very subtly because it is death water in comparison to the absolute abstract space. But for any ordinary being or anybody who's achieving that level, it's still extremely tempting, joyful, happy. So even at those levels, uh, primarily we, we call this the difference between the spiral path and the direct path. In order to achieve the, the choice to take the direct path, you first have to get to heaven, get to nirvana. Then you renounce that in order to go higher. But in order to go higher, you have to go deeper into the hells. And those are called the labors or works of Hercules. In the Pistis Sophia, it is the repentances of Sophia. Those repentances, are, I will not go into detail because it has to do with this elevated aspects of the path, but um, the Pistis Sophia is talking about that level. Of course, we can read it at our level and understand it at our, at our level, and there's lots of things in there that, we can, that can be helpful, but the major content of that book of the Pistis Sophia, those repentances are about the direct path. So for us, it's very difficult and, and confusing to understand. But from the, from the absolute, from the region of Barbello, that region of happiness called heaven or nirvana looks like death water because people get stuck there. And of course, the great life, that's the region of Barbello. Any other questions? In order to prepare for choosing the direct path by already developing some dislike for the heavenly heavenly realms. I don't think you need to worry about disliking the heavenly realms. I mean, unless you're visiting them cognizantly and consciously. You can't renounce what you haven't acquired. People want to renounce nirvana and they don't even have nirvana. I renounce being a billionaire. I don't, I, don't have, I don't have a billion dollars, so I can't renounce it. So I wouldn't worry about that. I would worry about observing yourself right now, working on your practical problems, observing your mind, transforming the mind, going into meditation, and doing your practical work. Understanding these things about the two types of illumination, that helps you understand the scriptures. That helps you understand other doctrines. That helps you understand things. But I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you spend a lot of time trying to reject nirvana or, or the heavenly realms. I don't think that's worth, worth too much time right now. I talked about it because it's really important to... It's really important to understand that when we talk about perfection, we're not talking about being a person who has, you know, something, you know, they, they have a, a decent life and they don't have a lot of problems in their life. And we're not just talking about somebody who knows how to meditate a little bit. Uh, we're talking about something that goes all the way to the absolute. And it's a very lofty perspective, but it's the perspective we want. We want to stare at the North Star so that we always fall in the right direction. If we, if we have our orientation, we have our compass in the wrong direction, 
then we will never get to where is really the, the end goal. And this is a teaching, a Christic teaching, which is a direct path teaching, a true direct path teaching. Unfortunately, the modern forms of religion today are all, all watered down. Um, Christianity should have always been, always had the higher teaching to it, but it's it's been very difficult to find. It's always been lost. What if you are already practicing the teachings and you see the ego between the waking and sleepy state? Anger, for example. You see the reaction in the subconscious. What do you expect? What do you recommend? Okay, great question. When we see the reactions occurring internally, this is good because you have to realize that before you wouldn't have seen that. You'd be too asleep and you'd only realize it or only see it when it actually happened physically. So being able to see that internally, even if you, you know, fail or come, succumb to the temptation of anger, you know, that's, that can be disappointing. But you have to look at it in the right way. You have to be. You have to have a, a type of humility, of course, because it hurts our pride to realize we have some defect. But immediately, you have to you have to cut straight through that pride and vanity, and also cut through the other side, which a lot of people have a lot of self hatred, or they get immense regret, or they fall into a sort of they wrap themselves up in feeling very pathetic. Both of those need to be cut through. Don't get stuck in them. Just look at the data. Look at the information. This is what's happening. I, I must still have those elements within myself because it happened. I do not have enough recognition. I don't recognize the ego at that moment. So when it comes out, it's already there. I don't see it within my subconsciousness. So what you actually have at that time is a lot of good information and you have to take it as like a uh okay now i have something to 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 meditate on something concrete i know this happened you take that experience into your next meditation just because you had a particular meditation and let's say that you saw it happening okay keep going into meditation again and again because although in the stories of Perseus and of the hero, they seem to slay the demon the first time, in reality, you, a lot of times you see that when, uh, they'll describe that all these other warriors try to slay Medusa and they all got turned to stone. Well, that's us and all those other times we tried to meditate. So be heroic and keep learning from your lessons. And little by little, you develop more and more. People want comprehension to be immediate, exact, and complete every time. And it's not the way comprehension works. A lot of the time, comprehension is like grains of sand slowly building upon each other. And sometimes you don't realize that you've developed a lot more comprehension until something sort of shifts um, I've, I talked about this in a prior lecture, but a psychological death is very tricky. 
Because you can apply the same force and it seems like nothing's happening. But just like if you had something like a glass of water on a table and you applied just a little bit of force and you moved it just one centimeter, okay, you moved it one centimeter, nothing really more happened. You could repeat that a hundred times and it just every time moves one centimeter. But when it reaches the edge of the table, you just move it one more centimeter and the whole glass falls and shatters. And in my experience, psychological death could be just like that. It's, it's, and, it, and for the mind that wants results and wants change, it's very frustrating. So you really have to have a sort of very even outlook in the way that you work on yourself. There are other times when comprehension comes like a flash of lightning. That can happen too. And there are times when that comprehension happens even though you're not meditating right now. But it only really happened because you've been meditating on yourself. So there have been times when you know, you're in the shower or you're just sitting down and all of a sudden something connects. And for what reason, why did it connect exactly that moment? That's difficult to understand. But I can tell you that when you meditate a lot, that happens more often. And as we meditate more and more, it becomes more regular. As I understand it, the innermost is the one that chooses the path when the time comes. So how can when at this earth, at this stage really choose as opposed to merely aspire to walk the path? So there's a certain stage of the path when you actually have the choice. The choice the impulse should be coming from the innermost. The uh, soul needs to be reflective and connected to the innermost at that time. That's how the choice is made correctly. This is the sort of mystery between free will and the will of God. We have to inhabit the will of God. We have to merge our will with the will of God and remember the will of God. Now for us, because this is a direct path teaching, we're teaching it in that terms. We're teaching the complete path. Um, but for any individual that makes it to that point, that's their will. Well, we don't, you know, that's whatever one wishes to choose, and they should choose what their divine will is. But the path is always traversed by the human consciousness. So for us, we should keep that in mind. That you know, If we want complete liberation, we need to go to the absolute. Thank you very much. We will see you next time. <laughs>